0: Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the pod that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, an expert in football finance at Liverpool University, Kira Maguire.
1: But before anything, this is the pod that says happy birthday to the Baroness. Thank you very much on, on behalf of her. Uh, as always, she doesn't listen to the show she, because she's scared of what I might say.
0: Yes, and uh, it was very sweet that you sent me the restaurant from the posh. Uh, you sent me the restaurant. That, 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 when we start getting paid, you'll send me the restaurant. You sent me the, the menu from the posh restaurant, which I'm fairly sure you only took a to because one of the starters was salted plums.
1: <laughs> well, I can't so, possibly
0: comment. You see, I know the trouble is you send me you send me a picture of the, the menu with sorted plums on it, and then I have to tell Ali while I'm laughing. <laughs> then her eyebrows go up, and then my eyebrows go up, and then. <laughs> uh, it, Kieran, it's questions day, um, and we do have a lot of questions to ask you. And this week, it seems that some of our listeners are trying to break the record for world's longest question. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, a, a couple of new to- a couple of news items first. Former Wigan Athletic owner Al Young has agreed to waive the £36 million owed to him by the club. I really hope, Kieran, he's not looking for a round of applause off the back of that.
1: Well, no, but uh, the best way I can describe this is it's a diamond in a cesspit as far as his ownership of the club is concerned. Um, And it's still as baffling as ever, but it does potentially give the club uh, a greater chance of avoiding a further 15 point penalty next season uh, because under AFL rules um if you don't give your unsecured creditors 25% of what is owed to them um you 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 do get a, a, another quite severe penalty to have to deal with so so the creditors of Wigan Athletic they were 46 million pounds of which 36 million was owned to uh, effectively al young through uh, the the national leader fund and wa holdings now he's written that off so that drops the uh, that drops the creditors to to 10 million so instead of having to get 25% of uh, 46 million the administrators when when they sell the club they need to get enough money to be able to pay 25% of 10 million so that That is a step in the right direction in terms of of another potential points deduction next season, so this is possibly a rare act of decency from our young then is it, it it's it is uh, it it's still baffling as to why he a bought the club in the first place, given that we established he was already talking about putting yeah. it into administration yeah, yeah. as soon as he owned it um and then writing off thirty six million pounds. Uh, a couple of months later. Um, Nobody in their right minds would do this. Um, And I'm I'm sure the bloke's not stupid. So as as we've said on many occasions, there is more to this than meets the eye. Yeah,
0: and I'm I'm fairly certain that this will be a subject we're probably talking about this time next season. And we're going to talk about it a little more now because um, we heard this week here that the EFL has released its commission rulings into the Wigan, Sheffield Wednesday and Birmingham city cases. And you spoke to Tom Horton, a QC from football law to get all the details. And here's what he had to say.
1: That's right. I mean, so, so Tom was, uh, Tom was really good to us. Um, yeah. He's not a QC though. Apparently I got that oh. wrong. He's, he he, he described himself as as just a lowly barrister, and I, I thought a lowly barrister was the ones that worked in Starbucks. So, uh, I'm not quite sure where he is in the pecking order, but he's certainly a lot smarter than you or I. If I if I had a
0: hat, Kieran, I'd be taking it off to you for that pun. That was <laughs> see, and and also it just proves what I've always said: you can work clean, Kieran. You can work clean. Um... <laughs> So listen. So let's let's hear. I'm also taking exception to the fact that he's cleverer than you are. You're a these are made up QC. You're a made up professor of football finance. So, and I'm a fully qualified pub expert on many things. So let's let's have a listen to what he said.
1: Hi Thomas, or Tom, should perhaps call you um, <laughs> as it's a Saturday. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm very well,
2: thank you, and thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it
1: you're welcome you're welcome and uh, you know uh, as, as you're probably aware Kevin and I are both pub lawyers which uh, w- which works at times you know we we've, we've got certain rules such as we change the owners and directors test to are you a rogan which i suspect as uh, somebody with a qc after their letters after their name you you'd probably say it could be a little bit more difficult to prove
2: um- I, I, I'm not a QC, Kieran, <laughs> which is one thing to bear in mind. Uh, I, I, I noted um, Kevin had given me that promotion uh, in the last show. Uh, I am, um, I suppose, a, a lowly junior barrister um, focusing or looking to focus on um, sports law and football law in particular. Um, and I say it, it's something that I've sort of been focusing on now for the past couple of years. And um, earlier this year, I launched, um, uh, FootballLaw.co.uk, uh, which has had a good reception so far. Uh, I've been commenting on the most recent um, news stories, uh, whether it be sort of disciplinary commission uh, decisions, uh, or, for example, um, uh, takeovers I've been uh, rumbling on or not coming to fruition. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been over the past sort of five months where I've really put myself out there uh, in, in terms of football law, uh, but it's something that I've been building up my knowledge on
1: now for the past couple of years. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I mean, there were there was uh, 121 pages. I counted them up. Uh, appeared on the EFL website uh, in in the last week or so. Um, I think it was last Monday morning. It dropped at 10 a.m. I, I guess the main uh, the main charges uh, that fans have been focusing on this week have been in respect of uh, Sheffield Wednesday. Um, th- there were two charges, one of which was proven effectively and one was not proven. Um, Could you sort of summarise uh, for for our listeners as to the reasons why uh, one went one way and one went the other way as far as the club was concerned?
2: Sure. So the the first charge against Sheffield Wednesday related to um, the sale of Hillsborough, which I know has been talked about numerous times on on the show before, and, and in particular, whether or not the sale of Hillsborough Should have been included in Sheffield Wednesday's accounts for the year ending 2018. Uh, In summary, that charge was proved. The stadium sale should not have been in the accounts for the year ending 2018. the 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 issue for the uh, independent disciplinary commission was whether or not assertions that have been made by the EFL in respect of that stadium sale uh, gave rise to a legitimate expectation on Sheffield Wednesday's behalf that it could be included in the accounts for the year ending um, 2018. And another reason why Sheffield Wednesday has put it into um, the accounts for the year ending 2018 uh, were because there'd been an email from somebody at the EFL which essentially said that if the auditors approve of this, uh, then yes, it can be included um, in those uh, year ending 2018 accounts. But one of the difficulties was, or that came to fruition um, from the written reasons of the Disciplinary Commission, was that the auditors, when they gave the effective sign-off in respect of including the sale in the year-ending 2018 accounts, they didn't seek any legal advice um, about the terms upon which the stadium sale was based. Uh, And likewise, nor did um, the officials of Sheffield Wednesday um, seek any legal advice about the the basis for that sale as well. And and what Sheffield Wednesday had effectively done was after the 31st of July, 2018, uh, realized that they needed to um, sell the stadium, but that it needs to be accounted for before the 31st of July, 2018. So they effectively tried to enter into heads of terms agreement for that sale of the stadium uh, with an effective date before the 31st of July, 2018. Now there was some. Or it was put forward by Sheffield Wednesday to the disciplinary commission that there might be some complex way around of formulating some sort of document, but in essence, it wasn't a legally binding document that they entered into, um, and and that was you know a big pitfall in respect of Sheffield Wednesday's position. Um, and, and on the back of that as well, because of this erroneous understanding by the auditors giving permission in how the stadium was supposed to be um, accounted for. Um, The disciplinary commission said that if the EFL is bound by that erroneous decision of the auditors, then essentially the EFL would always be bound by errors made by an independent third party. And that's just not right. Uh, And also above that too, the EFL's regulations require um, uh, football clubs' um, accounts to comply with specific um, uh, requirements uh, either legally or, or regulatory uh, and by including the sale in the year-ending 2018 accounts that hadn't been uh, satisfied. Uh, so that was in respect of that legitimate expectation um, issue and and insofar as anyone at the EFL said um, that Sheffield Wednesday can do that as well um, it was um, stated by the Disciplinary Commission that the the officers of the EFL involved um, didn't have the authority to uh, change the EFL regulations, which, as I said, uh, required the company's accounts to comply with legal and regulatory uh, requirements. Uh, Although that does raise the issue of if those officers did have the authority, could the accounts then have been complied without compliance with those legal and and regulatory requirements and that might be something that's being raised um, in the appeal uh, which Sheffield Wednesday are making Uh, and then in respect of another defence from um, under this charge uh, it was quite an interesting or quite nuanced point was that because uh, that first element um, had been proved uh, that the uh, annual accounts weren't done properly Sheffield Wednesday then submitted, well, in theory, then, no actual or proper annual accounts has been submitted um, as defined in the regulations. And as that's a requirement for the EFL to refer matters for misconduct hearings, um, that qualification hasn't been met, and therefore it was premature for these disciplinary proceedings to be issued. Um, however, that argument was given fairly short shrift by the disciplinary commission. Um, as it essentially tried to make the regulations unworkable or try to make them absent of any meaningful uh, in, in enforcement within a reasonable period. So that was in respect of Charge 1, uh, and that's what was going to result in the sanction against Sheffield Wednesday. In respect of Charge 2, this was a, a bit more of a serious allegation, um, and this was in respect of whether or not Sheffield Wednesday uh, had deliberately concealed um, from the EFL Uh, the terms of that heads of terms agreements that I referred to earlier, uh, in in respect of it being backdated um, to before um, the 1st 1st of July 2018. Now, the EFL uh, noted originally that uh, when they started looking at this charge and all the evidence, that if the EFL is going to allege um, uh, that someone has been dishonest, they should do more than just say that they are concerned. They should make the, an outright allegation against those involved. And above that as well, in order to make any such allegation, the EFL should really have some convincing evidence to support it from the off. Um, and, and it was also noted as well that the, the officials from Sheffield Wednesday involved, they hadn't even been given the chance to uh, be you know, investigated or properly interviewed by the EFL before this charge of dishonesty was made against them. Um, the reasoning in respect of this charge, which ultimately resulted in the charge not being established, um, you know, those from Sheffield Wednesday were, were very relieved to find out, um, uh, focused really on, on a meeting that had taken place between Sheffield Wednesday and the EFL back in August of 2018. Now, at this point, that heads of term agreement hadn't actually been finalized. Um, As I've said, it it was entered on a a later date after that 3rd of August meeting, but it was backdated. And and what the EFL were essentially saying was that at that meeting on the 3rd of August 2018, Sheffield Wednesday or its officials had concealed um, the information that this heads of term agreement um, had been entered uh, and had been backdated. However, it hadn't been entered at that time. It was something that was done after the 3rd of August. Um, 2018, and also um, the email correspondence and contemporaneous notes from that meeting that the uh, Disciplinary Commission considered um, resulted in the Disciplinary Commission um, finding it difficult to accept um, that um, Sheffield Wednesday did conceal or would have had to have concealed anything from um, the EFL. Um, So it, it, it was dealt with very convincingly, but it did raise a lot of criticism against the EFL. For dealing with such a serious allegation in a fairly la- fairly laxadaisical manner, and you really should have some, you know, significant evidence before you if you're going to allege that someone's being dishonest. So that was the those were the two charges, and say so the first one was proven, the second one um, uh, was not so.
1: That's great. I mean, because because I'm aware that the EFL did have charges against Mr. Chancery, Catherine Meir, and the finance director earlier. In the year, and they were dismissed. So, for me, as a layman, it seems. Well, given that the senior officials at the club have been uh, found innocent of the the allegations, why then pursue the club? Because looking at the uh, at the report from the IDC, uh, it appears to hint that if the EFL had simply focused upon the issue of the sale of the stadium, then a decision could have been made a lot quicker. Is, is that the case or am I misunderstanding things?
2: No, no, that's absolutely correct. And So there, there were two decisions released from um, the EFL uh, last week. Uh, and one of them dealt with the charges in particular, then the second one dealt with um, the sanction to be applied for Sheffield Wednesday's breach or or the charge one that was proved um, and part of the reasoning uh, behind the, the disciplinary commission's decision to impose a trial point uh, deduction effective from next season was indeed what you've just said in that this charge two which wasn't proved and, and which you know the, the disciplinary commission were critical um, of the EFL in respect of um, didn't really need to have been made until the EFL had done proper investigations on their behalf. Their regulations allow them to have pretty extensive investigatory um, procedures completed before a charge is even issued, but they didn't do that, and that was one of the factors which resulted in um, the, the, the charges firstly not being made until November 2019 but then also the general evidential considerations and legal arguments in respect of Charge 2 just added generally to the whole timescale of the um, of, of the matter. Uh, and what the Disciplinary Commission said was that, you know, but for Charge 2 being brought, the matter could have been dealt with much sooner, albeit there would have been some delay, perhaps potentially with COVID, I'm not sure. Uh, but that was certainly one of the criticisms against the EFL and one of the factors in the Disciplinary Commission's mind uh, when making a decision on the appropriate sanction. Um, and, and, and like you say, Zoddy, in respect of those individual charges um, uh, being dropped earlier on, uh, what the uh, disciplinary commission noted in respect of charge two nonetheless was that although you're bringing it against the club and not an individual, in essence, you are bringing it against the individuals because they're the ones that make the decisions of the club.
1: Yes. Okay, cool, cool. I mean, uh, just just a couple of other things, which is what I picked up. And again, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to stress, I am a layperson. Um- There was no reference from what I could make out with regards to the value of Hillsborough. So should we take from that um, that the £60 million sale price has been accepted effectively by the Commission and by the EFL when they're doing their next set of calculations? And and secondly, something I picked up, that there, there appeared to be some sort of uh, relationship between sheffield wednesday and derby in the sense that they were sort of sharing uh, evidence uh, is, is that is that usual for uh, for a case of this nature
2: um so in, in respect to the, the valuation of the, of the stadium uh, uh, as you've again noted a very detailed reading kieran uh, there, there was no criticism of the um, firstly um Using this method of, of selling a stadium to generate revenue or profit for a club, um, th- this is an accepted practice. And, and that's something that was noted a couple of times throughout both uh, written reasons. And then in respect to the valuation of Hillsborough, th- there was no criticism o- of that at all as well. Um, so I- I'd be surprised if there's going to be anything further in respect of that actual specific transaction and you know, it firstly taking place and also the value of it as well. The second point that you've mentioned in respect of Sheffield Wednesday and Derby County uh, sort of being in each other's ears, um, it, 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 it's an interesting point and what the Disciplinary Commission um, said in uh, its written reasons in respect of imposing the sanction is, is that they, they don't pass any comment on the appropriateness of the two clubs doing that. And, I I, I don't think there's anything really that prohibits the clubs from speaking to each other and and sharing that information. And even if an argument was to be raised against it, it it would essentially be undermined by, well, if if the EFL, um, I'll I'll get to what was discussed in in a moment, but if the EFL are essentially going to release um, this uh, line of of attack uh, and it's going to be evident from the written reasons, then there's no harm Uh, and and those written reasons will be publicly available eventually, there's no harm in in those clubs discussing what's going on. Um, And what was going on in particular was that in respect of Derby County, which I'm sure the listeners will will be aware of, they're facing very similar charges to uh, what Sheffield Wednesday have faced in respect of the sale of Pride Park. And in that case, if the EFL are successful in establishing the charges against Derby County, uh, what has been uh, discovered is that the EFL are not going to be looking to impose a sanction to be effective from the just finished 2019-20 season, but we'll be looking for a sanction to be imposed in the 2021 season. Now, Sheffield Wednesday, being made aware of this from Derby County, finding out about it, used this reasoning as a line of attack um, before the um, disciplinary commission, to say, well, any sanction that's going to be imposed on us, um, likewise, shouldn't be imposed in the 2019-2020 season, but should be in the 2021 season. Um, and, and it was something that was validly accepted as a consideration by the disciplinary commission. Um, so it, it, it's, neat, it's interesting to see the two clubs speaking to each other. Uh, I don't think there's anything that prohibits it as well.
1: Okay, cool, cool. Well, that's that's pretty comprehensive. I really appreciate that. Um the the, uh, the the EFL uh, photocopier was clearly very busy uh, on Monday morning because not only did we have the reports out on Sheffield Wednesday, and, and you've got to give you've got to give credit to to all the parties involved for the transparency here. In my view, you know, I'm uh, I'm a great believer in giving credit where it's due and stick where it's due. So so <laughs> fair play to the EFL and the clubs involved. Um, we also had a ruling in respect of Birmingham where they were effectively found guilty of. Not sticking to a budget and the 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 the, uh, the sanctions against them was uh, a finger wagging. Is is that is that a fair summary?
2: Absolutely, a finger wagging, a slap on the wrist, which, whichever way you want to put it. It wasn't much uh, when you compare it to you know point sanctions and fines that are otherwise available. Um, th- this whole dispute between um, the EFL and Birmingham City has its roots back in August of 2018. And it wasn't until June of 2020 when this final you know, decision uh, was delivered um, that there's been some sort of conclusivity on it or conclusion on it. Um, what it brought down to, as you said, that there was this business plan that was entered between the EFL uh, and Birmingham City, which had, in essence, four conditions um, attached to it, uh, which required Birmingham City to, through the sale of registered players to make cost savings of just over ten and a half million pounds. And that was to be completed by the first of February 2019. So that 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 budget plan was entered on the first of August 2018 and the deadline for compliance was the first of February 2019. Which essentially meant meant that Birmingham City only had the January tran- transfer window. Um, to comply with this sale of players to generate savings of just over £10.5 million. They didn't comply with that amount by February 2019, but come July 2019, when they sold Shea Adams, although that's not explicitly referred to in the decision, it's kind of obvious when you piece it all together in news stories, when they sold Shea Adams, um, in terms of player sales, they made that cost saving. But in addition to that as well, I think in, in, in May 2019 they'd sold their uh, or St Andrews or whatever it's called now uh, um, for uh,
1: the, tr- the trillion trophy stadium. As <laughs> I'm, I'm sure fans are uh, love singing about that.
2: I think that's the only trophy that Birmingham City might have as well. Uh, bar one, oh, well, well, you, you, just
1: <laughs> you, you've just lost a few followers in, uh, in the Midlands there, Thomas.
2: You saw a healthy band, so it was fine. Um, so, yeah, so they, they also sold their stadium, which generated, I think is about £17 million worth of profit for them. But as I say, the cost saving was meant to be made uh, by way of player sales. But re- regardless of how it was done, the the deadline was the 1st of February 2019. That wasn't met. And therefore, the EFL brought charges of misconduct against Birmingham City because they hadn't stuck to that business plan. At first instance um, Birmingham City said and successfully argued that in complying with um, that condition to sell certain other players to make a 10.5 million cost saving by the 1st of February 2019 Birmingham City only had to exercise what's known as reasonable endeavours. So that's not like a second best, it's you know, doing your best to comply um, with that condition. And there was quite a lot of legal uh, discussion in that first instance decision. Uh, but the Disciplinary Commission agreed with Birmingham that that implied condition did um, take effect to the selling of players by 1st of February 2019. And considering that Birmingham City had sold some players, albeit it didn't amount to the 10.5 million that was needed, um, that Birmingham City were essentially in a buyer's market to the detriment of Birmingham City that the EFL had, for example, sent around a, a media release to chair people of uh, other championship clubs saying that Birmingham City were under some business plan, which is essentially a red flag saying Birmingham City needs to sell all their players, come and get them really cheap. Uh, that, 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 that was an issue as well that was considered. And, um, And and, and Birmingham City, as I say, avoided any sanction at the first instance on on that basis. However, the EFL then appealed against that decision, firstly saying that the uh, best endeavours requirement shouldn't be implied to this budget plan. And um, secondly, um, even if there was uh, best endeavours anyway, um, Birmingham City hadn't done that. And, And one of the big differentiating factors when it came to the appeal being heard, was that there'd been um, an error in terms of evidence from that first instance decision and the appeals decision, and most notably in respect of Shay Adams. What Birmingham City had said at first instance was that they um, would have, even if they'd sold Shay Adams in January 2019 for the best offer that they received then, they still would not have reached that £10.5 million requirement under the budget. Um, what came to fruition in the appeal was actually there was an offer in January 2019 which would have resulted in Birmingham City reaching that 10.5 million-odd target, and and, and that was a a significant factor against Birmingham City because it essentially meant, in in, in short, that they could have complied with um, the business plan. Um, So that was something that went against them. The the, the legal reasoning at first instance was undermined, and the implied term didn't apply in in, in any event. But, But then... Which makes this all seem a bit of a storm in a teacup for how much, you know, litigation there has been in respect of it, because Birmingham City did, albeit later on in the year, um, comply with the budget and also complied with the uh, profitability and sustainability rules generally as well. That militated against um, there being a, a harsh sanction imposed, and, and therefore the appropriate sanction from the appeals board perspective um, was simply a reprimand. Um, but I. I one qualification to that is, is that although it appears to be a huge storm in a teacup, insofar as that punishment is concerned, but the the one real issue that the EFL wanted to get clarified by way of the appeal was that any implied term of best endeavours shouldn't apply to any kind of business plan that is agreed between the club and the EFL. Uh, to try and get that club to comply with the profitability and sustainability rules in the future. Uh, so that was the real reason from what I could gather why that appeal was made, um, albeit that the sanctioning post at the end of it all just seems a bit um, underwhelming, I suppose.
1: So, so effectively, if uh, if the EFL comes to a similar agreement with a club or a similar proposal for a club in terms of a business plan to reduce losses or to to cut costs or whatever, um, that will now effectively be binding, um, on clubs in future uh, activities. Is is that correct?
2: Yes, that's exactly the reason uh, that's uh, given from uh, the, the the appeal decision. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that that does get some clarity then. Uh, but I mean, it must must be costing the EFL a fortune. All of this, and and then finally, um, and I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, you know, uh, I've I've myself and Kevin have both been had connections with Wigan Athletic. Um, their twelve point deduction. Now, to me, whilst the the moral issues we have to park here, um, to me that, that always seemed a pretty black and white decision to make on behalf of the EFL. So was it. Uh, was it a fairly foregone conclusion that uh, Wigan's appeal was going to fail? I,
2: I, I think so. And it, it's something that I wrote about um, before the written reasons that, and the, the announcement of the decision was made that uh, Wigan uh, had been unsuccessful. Purely because... So th- th- there's two things to bear in mind. The the 12-point deduction effective um, for in the 2019-2020 season was mandatory. The rules expressly state that... Mm. Because the administration occurred on X date, the child point deduction that has to apply in this season. The only basis upon which you can appeal that, and I think this has been mentioned on on the show before as well, is if the club could establish that there was a force majeure event, which is a defined term in the EFL regulations, and the way that it's worded, and the circumstances upon which Wigan were relying which essentially seemed to be that COVID happened, can we get off the hook, was not going to fall within that definition. It's, that's, a, that's a very you know, summative way of putting it or a reductive way of, of putting it. But in essence, that was it. And it was get, always going to be difficult for Wigan to, to overcome that force majeure threshold. Um, and, and, and unfortunately for them, I have the greatest sympathy for what the fans and the club, of course, have been going through. Um, it, it was always going to be difficult for them to, to overturn it. And I, I don't think there's been any, you know, um, overturning of such a deduction before as well. So um not saying the writing was on the wall, but it was. <laughs> um, yeah. and, 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 and I think as well, one point to take away from the 12-point deduction in, in Wigan in, in comparison to the, the Sheffield Wednesday case and, and the 12-point deduction there, it, it, it is... It created some confusion because not everyone was familiar with the mandatory points deduction in, in Wiggins' case yeah. and then the essentially discretionary um, sanction that could be imposed by the Disciplinary Commission in the Sheffield Wednesday case, um, which allowed for the Commission to apply reasoning and consider sanctioning guidelines and other circumstances as to why that 12-point deduction against Sheffield Wednesday should take effect from next season. Rather than the season just finished, or even the season before that, as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. As as far as I'm concerned, as somebody that used to work in the insolvency world, you're you're either in administration or you're not. Yeah, you know, it's it's a bit like you're either dead or you're not dead. Yeah, you know, it's it's a <laughs> uh, it, it it is a fairly uh, black and white issue. Um yeah. so, yeah, you know, I, I can understand from the, the perspective of the administrators if you know, they're trying to sell the club, and clearly they'll have a much better chance of selling the club at a higher price. If it's a championship club, but you know, I, I did feel that setting aside all of the curiosity, and I think that's where the, uh, the main issues are in respect of Wigan, uh, especially given the, the, uh, the latest we're hearing in terms of Mr. Al Young deciding to write off the debts that are due to him from the club um i think i think that's where uh, the the fascination lies but whether we'll ever get to the bottom of that story uh, is another, another matter But well, i'd just like to say thomas thank you so so much uh, for giving up your time I, I know you're about to go on holiday uh, so yeah you know, i'm sure you're, you're busy with your bucket and spade and things of that nature as well so uh, i know it can't be easy for you um if, uh, if if listeners want to find you on social media um and things of that nature where's where's the best place to look
2: Thanks so much, Kieran. So yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter, it's at the football law, uh, or you can head to the website, which is www.footballlaw.co.uk. Uh, and there's overviews on the website of uh, you know FIFA, UEFA, the Premier League, the EFL. But I also write uh, articles regularly as well, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, discussing the more, most recent uh, football law news and decisions.
1: Brilliant, brilliant. And just out of interest, who do you support? Aston Villa, of course. Ah right, ah right. Oh, well, so you're not too worried about losing too many Birmingham City fans, anyway. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> Superb. Thank you so much, Thomas. Have a great holiday, and thanks again for your time. Thanks, Kieran. All the best. Bye. So that's all.
0: I mean, basically, to to presee that, Kieran. He said the the Sheffield Wednesday one was the the wrong case. Birmingham got a slap on the wrist and Wigan were never
1: going to win because rules trump morality, essentially. That's right, Kevin. I think you have summed it up perfectly. Um, And I think if you were in the legal profession, you you wouldn't last very long because they get paid by the word. (laughs) Uh, And and you've managed to very succinctly summarise it in in about 15 seconds.
0: Yes, yes. And uh, I'm... (laughs) I I believe uh, what I took from that as well is that he doesn't—he's not convinced that your idea of an EFL Wrongans test is actually better than what they've got at the moment.
1: No, I'm slightly disappointed about that because we did put a lot of thought onto this onto the back of a beer mat and our our two question approach: a, are you a Wrongan, and b, do you have a mate called Big Dave? We were convinced would get rid of all inappropriate people uh, from the game.
0: Yeah. Also, I don't think you should be allowed to call it a beer, Matt. You're a teetotaler, so get your own, Matt. Um, right, questions. Uh, so we've got some very good questions today. And the first is about the league's oldest club. Um, Laurie, Eagle, Scott, James D, and Jedi all turn to us after a massive argument on Twitter amongst themselves um, for an answer to the Alexander-Surlock conundrum. Now, he plays currently for Trabzonspor, He's the winner of Turkey's Golden Boot. He's been linked with a move to RB Leipzig and Barcelona. But the trouble is, he's on a two-year loan from Crystal Palace. There's no recall clause, obviously. And Sport haven't taken up the €6 million option option to buy. So how can he move to another club in those
1: circumstances? Um, Well, I think without seeing the small print of his loan arrangement with Crystal Palace, we've got to be a little bit cautious here. Um, it would be potentially possible for Palace to buy him out of the second year of his loan arrangement. And there is a precedent to this uh, in the case of somebody called Alexis McAllister, who is, to my knowledge, the only ginger Argentinian international uh, ever to to wear the number 10 shirt for, for the uh, for the Argentinian national team. Now, uh, Alexis uh, was playing for Argentinos Juniors. He was then sold to my club, Brighton, for around about £7 million. But because he didn't have uh, a work permit, uh, he couldn't play in the Premier League. So we then loaned him back to Boca Juniors until he got an Argentinian cap. Um, And then last January, when things were looking a little bit dicky for us, We bought back our own player for £700,000 as a loan fee to to buy him back from his original loan. So what Palace could do is that Palace could get into negotiations with Trabzonspor and buy Solov back uh, effectively out of his two-year loan fee and then sell him to another club. Yes, well, I don't understand about
0: this, Kieran. And, and to be fair, he didn't look like he was going to win the golden boot in Turkey when we, we got rid of him, and, and not many Palace fans were sad when he went. But I can't understand why any club wouldn't have a recall clause in a loan deal anyway. It just seems common sense.
1: Well, I'm, there I'm, I'm entirely in agreement with you, um, and it, it comes down to you know the people at the club uh, instead of rushing through a deal, perhaps going through every line, and, and that's why we have club lawyers and so on, yeah, and that's why we take legal advice because you know quite often they will spot things of this nature and say, "Well, hold on, you know, what if he, he, he does discover his, his his shooting boots this season? You know, it, it could have been that, that Palace might have wanted to recall him in January and yeah. were unable to do so because he had been finding the back of the net in uh, in Turkey, and you know, it, it's it, it's not. Uh, it's not any any surprise to anybody yet yeah, Palace's biggest problem last season was was scoring goals I think they scored 32 goals the whole season so yeah, he, he could have been an addition to the front line
0: Well yeah as could Connor Wickham who he bizarrely decided to send to Sheffield Wednesday for no apparent reason I've got a feeling that if Palace do have a club lawyer Kirit, he probably is called Big Dave poor sod um, <laughs> Our next question comes from Billy Wakefield that's a great name isn't it Billy Wakefield that's a proper 60s film name isn't it um billy recently went to a work seminar on the corporate insolvency and governance act of 2020 and he's very keen to stress it was a work seminar he didn't volunteer for this he had to go (laughs) Uh, but billy's question is since most clubs are limited companies will the relaxation forward slash change in insolvency legislation have a positive impact for clubs in financial peril and perhaps you, you probably need to put some meat on those bones, and tell us what the relaxation uh, in insolvency legislation is in as few words as possible, please. Okay,
1: right uh, here I'm I'm indebted to friends of the show, a guy called Scott Bebbington, who who is an insolvency practitioner. So I I had a bit of a conversation with Scott, um, and, and to to summarise as quickly as possible, um, there are two potential avenues clubs could go down. First of all, there's a moratorium which prevents creditors from winding up the club. We're not convinced, or Scott's not convinced, if truth be told, that this would really benefit clubs, although it doesn't seem to be covered by EFL rules. So this is another potential loophole. And secondly, and this is about as middle management and PowerPoint friendly as possible, a restructuring and cross class cram down rule, um, which is similar to a CVA. um, And that could be very useful to clubs because it allows you to put your creditors into separate groups such as uh, staff, trade creditors, banks and so on. And if you can get 50% of each of those groups to agree, then perhaps you can get a deal through. But the important thing is that the courts can force through these agreements, whereas historically that wasn't the case. So it's, so it's all quite technical. Um, but He does think it could be beneficial to clubs, but it would come at a price. I think the, the cost of administering these uh, are quite significant. We've already seen in relation to Wigan that the, the administrator's fees you know, potentially we're looking at about 1.3 million, and it's only been in administration a few weeks.
0: So the moratorium, so a club could request that, presumably. And I, I need to write down the second one because I was giggling uh, halfway through it because of the alliteration. Cross-class? A cross-class cram-down. Cram-down? Cram-down. It's a new word. It's a bit WWE, isn't it? For, <laughs> for Yes. Example. Okay, and so so these are both things that clubs can now suggest possibly to... to keep them out of trouble but they will cost a lot of money you know just yeah, yeah. so right.
1: it, it, it's effectively it's a protective bubble for clubs so so could be of some benefit um there's also a couple of wind, uh, there's a couple of temporary measures um as a result of uh of the pandemic so there's no winding up orders allowed until the 30th of september um so that has protected clubs over the course of the summer. And um, oh, hello, we're just at attack of the it's, it's my late Paul delivering some wine for the Baroness. Um,
0: oh, does really what you said earlier, Kieran, it sounds like she doesn't need any more wine delivered. <laughs> oh. does, the, does the dog not like Paul? No, 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 the, do, the dog loves Paul. The oh, dog I see, loves that's an ex, that's an excited bark, is it? Yes, uh, um, does he bark so, like that when he sees you? Uh,
1: he, he gets very squeaky. <laughs> um oh, so, so
0: yeah sorry what's uh, i can't remember what your dog's name's called now It's called finley finley, oh, finley he, of he,
1: course yeah yeah finley. yeah, yeah. He's, he's he's now just run out of the house with one of my training shoes um <laughs> so so winding up orders uh that there's a moratorium on those which that gives clubs some protection but that runs out on the 30th of september and we've said on a number of occasions that we are in a sort of a bit of a phony war with regards to clubs' existence and, and protection. And with the uh, with the furlough scheme you know, uh, yeah. due to end at the end of October and these rules, the winding up petitions, the wrongful trading uh, ban on directors, that's suspended till the 30th of September as well. Once these rules uh, re- return... Then we could see more activity in terms of the, the continued existence of clubs, or rather you know the, the potential for some form of formal or informal insolvency arrangements so we 're okay at present, but yeah. I am getting twitchy okay
0: well i 'm sorry to that it 's um, a pessimistic note isn 't it? Um, our next question is uh, an early contender for the longest question of the pod. Uh, But there's no short way to answer this question, really, so I couldn't even find a way to sub it. It's a very good question. It comes from John Castle. And John's question is regarding the corporate structure of Celtic. Uh, John says that his understanding is it's made up of three companies. Uh, So you've got Celtic PLC, which owns the players, the ground and the membership of the SPFL. You've got Celtic FC Limited which is the professional football club, which receives all the gate money, employs and pays all the players and staff and receives the TV income. And then you've got the Celtic Football and Athletic Company Limited, which was probably set up to preserve and maintain the old name. So John wants to know if he's correct. And if so, why do Celtic set up in this way?
1: Uh, First of all, yes, John is correct. Um, Celtic set up uh, in a similar way to, to many clubs, Um, in that they put potentially different operations into sort of different silos. So if you take a look at Derby, they've got one company which runs the academy. You've got one company which runs the commercial arm. Manchester United are the same. You might have another company which owns the ground. Um, It's just... Uh, There are times at football clubs where you might want to sell off the catering or you might want to sell off the academy or the marketing department. And if it's set up as separate companies, um, then it's easier from the owner's point of view to to deal with that part of the business. Um, In respect of the, the Celtic football and athletic company, this is the old name in effect for Celtic. Um, and the reason why uh, the club has kept on that name is that they don't particularly want that that name being picked up by by a fan uh, either of Celtic or, or even potentially of Rangers um, you know for example Crystal Palace Football Club no longer exists as far as I can make out limited um, so a fan could set that up and, and that just causes a bit of confusion so you know if if somebody who's not over-familiar with, with Palace and now CPFC 2010 Limited, yeah. and you've got Palace Holdco and Palace Midco and so on that that person might reach the wrong conclusions. So by, by setting up and keeping the, the old name of the club, even though Celtic Football and Athletic Club is dormant, it just prevents somebody from doing a bit of mischief. Yes, that all makes perfect sense.
0: But to me, as a non-accountant, it, it, it does seem odd, and I'm sure it will do to quite a few people listening, that you've got one part of the company owns the ground and the membership of the SPFL, and then another part of the company receives the TV income, uh, separately it seems seems strange, but from what you're saying, it's not unusual in business or in football.
1: No, no. I mean, if you if you take a look at Newcastle, I think they've got something like 20 subsidiaries, oh, wow, okay. and be, because they're connected to Mike Ashley, um, every single Sports Direct shop is set up as a separate company. So, uh, you know, th- there is normally either a good legal or a good tax reason behind taking such an approach. So these three separate companies at Celtic, would they, do they have to produce three separate accounts at the end of the year, or is it still one... Group no, set of accounts. They, they do have to set, uh, publish separate separate accounts. But what happens, it's a bit like sort of a, a, a Matryoshka doll situation. Uh, if you're familiar with Russian dolls, they fit inside each other. So what you would do is that, is that you would go into the Celtic PLC accounts, which have, which act as an umbrella, and they contain the, the numbers of all of the companies added together. Okay. So now uh, Chris Flavell,
0: Flavell, Flavell, um, Flavell sounds quite Harry Potter, doesn't it? Let's go with Chris Flavel. Uh Chris has got an interesting question for fans of German football and, and our second mention of RB Leipzig. What are the chances um, on the pod about finance and football? Very high. Uh, Chris asks about Juan He Chan's transfer from RB Salzburg to RB Leipzig. Now, as he says, while well, this is undoubtedly a well-trodden career move by now, I think 18 players have gone from Salzburg to Leipzig. Why, says Chris, has it not attracted scrutiny from UEFA? Are there examples of deals between the two clubs that don't quite add up? And how do we know that transactions between the two clubs owned by the same person are taking place at market value?
1: Well, I think Chris's point is a very good one. And and this has certainly caused eyebrows to be raised historically. But as yet, Uh, If if you take a look at the UEFA rules, there appears to be nothing uh, which specifically looks at the transfer of registrations Mm -hmm. in terms of the prices which are being paid. Um, I think if you you recall, recently, we we spoke about the transfer or the potential transfer of Arthur from Barcelona. I think it was to Milan and the prices there uh, because it was a player swap, those prices both looked high, but it allowed both clubs to report a profit on the deal. Yeah. Um, if, if we take a look at multi club ownership, um, I think, uh, you know, Manchester City and the, the, the transfer of Aaron Moy is, is a classic example of eyebrows shooting up. Uh, Aaron Moy was uh, part of Melbourne City. He was then signed on a free transfer by Manchester City. His his career there lasted 6 days before he went out to Huddersfield Town. So Manchester City got a, a loan fee for a player who'd only been with them for a week and who cost them nothing. And then 12 months later, Aaron Moy was sold for somewhere between 8 to 10 million pounds to Huddersfield Town. So you know the the cynics and the critics, and you know, I, I don't I don't have a dog in this particular fight. I'm just reporting what what I you know from my my perception of what has happened. That yeah, you know, the critics will say, well, City have organised this, or rather, the City Group have organised this in such a way that the profits are taking place in Manchester City's accounts because they're the club who are most at risk in terms of financial fair play. Um, And and there are also, if if you recall, Frank Lampard with Manchester City and New York City, Mm. that caused a bit of a stink at the time because nobody was quite sure uh, where Frank was registered for a while. Yeah, you did have a dog in this particular fight, but he's just legged it with your trainer, isn't he? Um,
0: (laughs) Also, Aaron Moyer plays for Brighton, so you do sort of have a dog in the fight, Kieran. Um, Well, yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, Simon Dorsett is challenging John Castle for the week's longest question. Simon, I have subbed it a little because I kept getting lost halfway through. I, I had to leave a trail of crumbs during one attempt to write this question down. Um, but it is a, again, it's a very interesting question. And, and it's about Reading. And Reading are one of those clubs, Kieran, that without ever ringing alarm bells, crops up every four or five weeks with a question that makes you go, hmm, this seems very interesting. Um, and here's Simon's question. Simon says, and he's a fan, Reading seems to have avoided breaching FFP over the last three seasons by a significant one-off transactions so in 2016-17 loans of over £9 million were written off the following season was boosted by a £6.5 million profit on the sale of the stadium then last season Reading sold the training ground to the same company that bought the stadium this season they've issued 23.2 million shares at £52.35 per share to generate just over £12 million income now will that share issue count as revenue for FFP purposes And finally, he says, the loan write-off seems dubious enough as a way of generating revenue, but what's to stop every ambitious owner issuing more shares every season as a way of injecting funds?
1: Okay, let's deal with these two issues separately. First of all, in terms of debt write-offs... Um, this was the route that Queen's Park Rangers went down in 2014. They Their owners wrote off £65 million of, of debt, and uh, QPR tried to treat this as revenue. Um, that was a very long and protected case. It took around about four years. Um, and in the end, uh, QPR's defence was found uh, to, to not have worked, um, and they were given a sanction, although you could argue it effectively cost QPR around about nine million quid was the was the was the, the the present value of the fine and and they benefited from one year of being in the Premier League plus two years of parachute payment, so they benefited to the tune of one hundred and eighty million so i 've always been a bit. I, I think they got off quite lightly um, with that particular one. So, so just,
0: just remind me, Kieran. I, I, we have spoken about this before, but so for that one year that they were in the Premier League, the EFL investigation was frozen. Presumably, was it, or did it carry on? And they assumed that QPR would eventually come back down anyway. Well, the the, cha- the
1: charges were leveled at QPR, but the the, the case yeah, the case took it took four years of protracted negotiation. Um, yeah, QPR could have been in the Premier League and, uh, the, the EFL charges would have still stuck right. because, um, we, we've seen. Not only Queens Park Rangers, but also Bournemouth and Leicester City—they've uh, both been fined by the EFL whilst in the Premier League. So there's a sort of a gentleman's agreement between the two organisations: is that if the punishment is a fine, then the Premier League will uphold that. But if the pre- if the if the fi- if the punishment is a points deduction, the Premier League will not apply that whilst a club is in the Premier League. Got it? Okay. So that's the issue with regards to the debt write-off, which was uh, the first of Simon's questions. The second question, uh, in terms of share issues, if you take a look at the the profitability and sustainability rules, um, owners are allowed to put in £24 million over a three-year period uh, in the form of shares, and that will count towards FFP. If they put in any more it's good from a cash flow point of view, but it doesn't contribute towards your your FFP profit. Okay, right. Uh, that's a shorter answer than I was
0: expecting for that long question, but I hope, Simon, that makes sense. Uh, Robert Curtis is a Blackpool fan. This is less of a question, Kieran, than a proud statement. But as Blackpool over the past few years haven't had many chances to make proud statements, I was allowed. I was happy actually to nod this one through. Uh, Robert says that Blackpool offered season ticket holders five options with regards to unplayed games at the end of last season. Option number one: leave the money in the club. Option two: donate the five tickets to the NHS and other key workers, so they got the refund. Donate them to local charities. Credit towards next season's ticket or a pro rata refund. And Robert just wants to know, have any clubs offered as many or more options to their fans? I know Palace offered three, but I can't think of many clubs that have offered more than five. And it's to Blackpool's credit, I presume, that they've done this, Kieran, isn't it?
1: Yes. I mean, I've, I've looked at a few clubs. I think a few clubs have, uh, some have matched the, the five options available. Some have offered fewer. Um, what, what, I'm, what, what always intrigues me is what is the default position? So sometimes you'll get an email which says, unless if we don't hear you from 30 days, mm-hmm. we're assuming you're going to give the money back to the club. So yeah. it's a case of opting in or opting out being the default position of the club. And, and I think that says a lot for the integrity of individual clubs because – not everybody checks their email on a regular basis. And also my experience with dealing with football clubs and their ilk, sometimes uh, you know, my, my Gmail account will, will stick things from a football club uh, into the, the junk folder because just, they just look like they're a mail-out yeah. and uh, Gmail can be a bit too aggressive at times. So therefore you miss out on things of this nature.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Um, a broader
0: question comes from Greg Campbell. And Greg says, can Kieran I'm I'm not gonna be insulted by the fact that he says can Kieran rather than can you offer any insight um into this, Kieran? I'm a bigger man than that. But Greg says, can Kieran offer any insight as to how Scotland compares to other nations around Europe? For example, proportional attendance figures are the highest in Europe, but our TV deal is lower than Denmark and Norway, for example. I said that twice. Um and he says Scotland has been able to outcompete much larger nations like Sweden and Poland. I think mean, some Swedish and Polish fans may disagree with that, Greg. Uh, but Greg says, are our finances stronger than those larger nations, or some of those larger nations?
1: Um, Scotland's an interesting one in that the the domestic TV deal uh, it isn't huge, um, and certainly some Scottish fans. Have uh, have complained about this. And remember when we had Neil Doncaster on the show last year? Yeah. I think he gave a, a very valid explanation as to you know the, the challenges that face uh, the, the the SPFL. Um, what I think is unique about Celtic, uh, sorry about Scotland, is that they've got Celtic and Rangers. And they have average crowds of just shy and just over 50,000 turning up every week, which Mm. is an amazing achievement. Mm. If you take a look at Sweden, the highest average attendances in Sweden are 23,000. In Poland, they're only 17,000. So we've got these two Scottish clubs who do generate more income than what you might refer to as their their European peer group, the likes of Sweden, Poland, Hungary, and so on. And um, over half of both Celtic and Rangers' income comes through match day. So again, I think that's testament to the the feverish support that those those two clubs get, so that does give them a, a financial advantage when they are trying to compete for places in the Champions League and the Europa League. Um, so so both of those are pluses. Um, as a result of that, um, yeah, those clubs have those two clubs have been at the forefront. Uh, to a lesser extent, yeah, we've had the likes of Aberdeen making some progress in in the European leagues and so on. Um. The uh, the algorithm that UEFA use, and fortunately this, this appears to be one that hasn't been used to allocate A-levels, yeah. um, does appear to be quite consistent uh, in its operation, um, and, and clubs and uh, national institutions, national football associations, know exactly what they have to achieve to make progress. So as from next season, for example, Scotland will get Uh, two potential places in the Champions League because the SPFL club's record in recent years has put it in the top 15 nations within Europe so that could be incredibly lucrative for those two clubs and once you get into that situation because UEFA money makes such a difference uh, you know Celtic were were making when, when they qualified for the group stages of uh, the Champions League, they were making £30 million a year simply from that alone. Mm. Uh, That can be sort of – creates a virtuous circle and becomes self-fulfilling. Thank you, Kieran, on behalf of Greg.
0: uh, uh, Jacob Frick. Has asked us a question. Jacob Frick is an American who is fascinated by football, but he says, except for his university team, Jacob had no team to support. So, based on your podcast, I decided to pick a lower league team in England. I now own a Hereford FC shirt solely because I like their crest. Well, it is a very handsome bull with very kind eyes. Um, Jacob says I discovered that they are a Phoenix club how does that work financially do they have any fiscal connection to the old club do they have to buy the rights to the crest the name etc and before you answer this Kieran I'll let Jacob into a little secret Um, as you probably know Jacob if you listen to the pod regularly I don't believe that anybody should have any affection whatsoever for a second team I believe that when you're born your place of birth and the place of your local football team should be registered at the same time. And when you're older, you have to support that team, even if it means getting tattooed at the age of 10, to remind you. But as it happens, my wife's dad, God rest his soul, his last uh, church circuit as a Methodist minister was in Hereford. So I spent a lot of time there, became friendly with some Hereford fans, went to a lot of games. And if if I have to ever admit to having a soft spot for another team, it is Hereford. So I'm with you there. But, Kieran, be, it would be interesting because we do talk a lot about Phoenix clubs and how successful they can be and how much fun they can be for fans of the old club. But I'd never actually thought about how it does work
1: financially, especially that idea of buying the right to the, the name, the crest, etc. Well, you're absolutely right, Kevin. So uh, Hereford United FC were wound up in 2014. Um, they they were subject to litigation from HMRC from a former owner as a former manager for non-payment of wages and things of this nature. There was an ill-fated takeover in 2014 by a a bloke called Tommy Agombar. Agomba. Um, Tony was best described uh, colourfully as an entrepreneur. Hmm. Um, and upon further investigation, it turns out that he bought Hereford United Football Club for two pounds. Now that that's the price of football, you know that that gets our alarm bells ringing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it turned out that he uh, he had spent uh, some time. Uh, indoors uh, for lorry theft. Now, as you know, I've, I've got no issue with people doing time. Uh, I, I, I am indebted to HMR, sorry, to to uh, for members of my family for keeping them safe from uh, <laughs> safe safe from temptation by locking them up in the past. Um, but. Uh, as a result of that, Tommy was uh, Tommy failed the owner's and director's test. Um, there, there were issues with some of his associates, I think it's fair to say, and uh, the Hereford United fans started to boycott the club mm. with the, with the uh, consequence that crowds dropped from... You know, Hereford used to get fantastic crowds even in non-league. Indeed. Crowds dropped to around about 200. Um so the club was wound up but this allowed the the Hereford United Supporters Trust to create this Phoenix club called Hereford Football Club as opposed to Hereford United yeah. and they they were effectively able to take over to effectively buy for buy for a pound I would understand um the crest and they've also got a lease I believe at Edgar Street they have, Yeah yeah uh, you know, so I I've been to Hereford United myself I was there in 1997 for Hereford's final game as a football league club. And it was, uh, without doubt, the most emotional 90 minutes of football I've ever observed. Same for me. Um, I was I was in the town. I was heartbroken when they didn't relegate you. Yes, I can imagine. Yes. Um, uh, but since uh, Hereford FC were formed in 2016, they've had three promotions. Uh, they're now in the National League North. And, and a bit like AFC Wimbledon, um you know where where a club does have a connection with its local community which again is very much at the heart of our beliefs on this podcast mm-hmm. um it tends to to get relatively good support compared to the leagues or the divisions in which it starts so it can whiz up through those leagues and and it has been quite successful and i think here is is the hope for the likes of berry afc um, you know, in their uh, their ambitions to to return to the football league at some point in time, and, and you know, and equally, I'd like you know, hope the same happens for Hereford Football Club because uh, it's 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 a club with history and heritage, or rather, it's a town with history and heritage. You and I are both old enough to remember 1972. Uh, you 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 took the words again. You took the words right out of my mouth. I think
0: I think most football fans of our generation have got a certain soft spot for Hereford because. That was probably the most iconic image of seventies football for me, is, is them beating Newcastle, then in the first division, and what seems about twenty five thousand kids in Parkers invading the, <laughs> invading the pitch at the end and falling out of trees it was marvelous. But just on that specific, it, it just interested me. And why, why Jacob's question interested me particularly was, it in fact, about that about that crest, and of course, Hereford always associated with the ball. But so in the negotiations to buy the club from the the clearly wrong and. Owner, would things like the rights to the crest? Would would they? Yeah, when you talk about a, a supporters group buying a club for a pound, I mean, are we we still talking about contracts that are 150 pages long here, or are we just literally talking about right? I don't want it anymore; it's yours. I mean, so the crest images, player. You know, are, are they still involved when a phoenix club does
1: that? yes because the intellectual property in relation to the old crest rests with Hereford United football club now the 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 person effectively the liquidator of the club uh yeah you know, th- th- there's no other takers so he he's he or she's going to to take the best price available um and you you sell the whole thing as a package so it would be a a reasonably long legal document just really to list out um the assets which are being acquired because uh, yeah, there could be other assets, or the, you know, the assets themselves could have charges against them. They could be leased and rented. So what the, the liquidator or the insolvency practitioner would do is, is to establish ownership of individual assets. Um, I, I remember when I was running a, uh, a narrowboat holiday company <laughs> here in the UK, <laughs> which had gone bust, and... Uh, <laughs> what 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 the owner had done, which which was which was which I did admire in a way, was that uh he'd taken out mortgages on the boat. So if he had a boat, let's say he had a boat called uh Arkansas, um he would go to Barclays Bank and say, Well, this but this boat is worth fifty grand. Will you give me a thirty grand mortgage on it? Barclays would some send somebody down, do a quick valuation, yeah, we'll lend you money. And then what this bloke did was that he unscrewed the nameplate to the boat, and he says, "Right, I've now and then he stuck on a new nameplate with Wyoming on it." And he did this with four or five times. So when the company went bust, I was doing this list of boats. I go, "Well, there's there's 46 mortgages, and we've only got 21 boats," and trying to work out what went on. Um And then the bloke uh, said, "Oh, I, I, I'm just a." going away for the weekend with the missus and he caught a flight to bolivia um so i had to go and clear up the mess on that particular one but but these things can get messy which shows you really have to do your paperwork very carefully
0: yeah plus i believe he also made the mistake of paying alan partridge too much to for the advertising deal um Tony Hay, that's I, I often wonder in my, my, my every antenna in my body stiffens. Well, I should have said that, should I? When you say I once did, this is uh, that's another one to add to the list, narrowboat owner. Uh, Tony Hay, uh, again, this is one of those things that it, it seems simple, but we've never really considered it. Tony Hay says, I imagine players at the Premier League will be very nervous at the moment about being loaned from a Premier club to a championship club or, or lower that might end up in administration. What happens to loan players at a club like Wigan, for example, if wages go unpaid? Do parent clubs pick up the wages or do they just recall the player?
1: Right, the, the player's contract of employment rests with the parent club and therefore the parent club is obliged to pay him. The way that this works out is the the club which is effectively renting the player, so if, if Wigan were rent well, had loaned a player from, let's say, Liverpool, um, Wigan pay to Liverpool a monthly fee which is a contribution towards the wages as well as the loan fee which is agreed between the two clubs. So the player himself is all always- always protected in the sense that provided his parent club uh, is trading then he's got nothing to worry about uh, in terms of uh, going out on loan to a club which might be at a higher risk from a potential insolvency in the lower leagues. Now this is probably more of a a legal
0: employment question Kieran than a financial one but there's a a player is he able to refuse to go on loan If, if if Palace say right you're going on loan and he doesn't want to go on loan is he
1: able to do that? Uh, yes, he, he would be able to turn that down, um, and, and there have been examples. So if you take a look at what's happened with Gareth Bale course, and Real yeah, Madrid, yeah. Uh, I think Real Madrid have tried to loan him to clubs in China and, and elsewhere in the Middle East, and uh, Gareth Bale has turned around and says, actually, I quite like Madrid as a place to live. I've got a contract of employment here until I think it's 2022. Mm. Um, so thanks, but no thanks.
0: Yeah. See, the trouble with that argument is he he does quite like Madrid until Tottenham offer him a fortune, and he has to explain why he likes North London better than Madrid. Um, our pen, our penultimate question. Not I'm implying that North London. Of course, I'm from South London. Why would I? Why don't not imply that Madrid is North better of than the North river? London? North of the river. Came exactly. Both South boys. Uh, our penultimate question comes from Mike Wright. Uh, and we'd be pleased to know, Kieran, it's regarding your favourite subject, says Mike. The Mike, to be fair, you, there are a lot of favourite subjects we haven't discussed <laughs> on this pod. So the, I, I, I was quite nervous yes, when you said that, yeah, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um,
0: for the purposes of this pod, your favourite oh, subject okay. is the selling of stadia to the owners of the club. Would it be possible, and again, it's another it's so simple this uh if if he was a criminal mastermind mike the policeman would be going it's so simple but we didn't even think of it would it be possible to sell the stadium back to the club for a pound and then rebuy it off the club for 80 million to help with ffp again
1: um conceptually yes it would be possible but if you take a look at the efl rules it says that if clubs do sell assets they've got to be at what's referred to as fair value. Now, if Derby County, for example, have sold Pride Park for £80 million to uh, another company owned by uh, Mel Morris, who's who's the the Derby owner – um, he's got to be able to prove that that eighty million pounds is a fair market price. If if a year later he sells it for a pound, that would indicate that the first transaction was not a, a fair value. Ah, course, so yes. I think from a uh, from an EFL charge point of view, um, that might come unstuck. And I think one of the one of the issues which which I did pick up from the the Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, EFL ruling was that there, there appeared to be no concern as far as the EFL were concerned um, that the sale of Hillsborough for sixty million pounds was at an artificially high value um, and and that could actually be some consolation for Derby County because they are still presently on a charge for e f from the EFL with regards to their stadium sale. Um, and that case should be due out in the next week or two.
0: Uh, okay, we'll we'll probably have another chat with Tom Horton, not QC, after that then. Um, our, our final question comes from Paul Patrick. Uh, Paul says, how does my club Cliftonville of Belfast survive financially? Are there ways we could do better? I know we're a minnow in the scheme of things, but I'd be interested in your perspective. Uh, Paul, in the scheme of things, there are no minnows on this pod. Uh, Cliftonville, every bit as important as Barcelona, as far as we're concerned. You support the oldest club in Ireland, Paul. Stand straight and tall. Be proud. But how does Cliftonville survive financially, Kieran?
1: Okay. Uh, well, well, first of all, they publish abbreviated accounts. So I'm on my soapbox. I'm now off the soapbox. Um, so I, I don't know the details in terms of their profitability. But uh, if we take a look at 2019... They, they did make a profit of around about 19 grand. They do have cash in the bank. Um, what's really important from Cliftonville's perspective is qualifying for the Europa League, even getting as far as the preliminary rounds. And I think they lost 6-1 on aggregate. Uh, in in twenty nineteen twenty, but they did get there. That was worth around about two hundred k to the okay. club, as far as the distributions from UEFA are concerned. Uh, and, and one of the things you know, I've I've got to give UEFA a lot of credit for is that they do try to get money to clubs in the smaller nations through routes such as this, and that, and that's got to be applauded. Uh, I mean, Cliftonville's average attendance is is uh, twelve hundred, which is none too shabby. Um, I took a look at their balance sheet overall and I think they they run themselves, they run a pretty tight ship, uh, they don't overextend themselves, you know, from what I could see, uh, you know, in a non-Covid world, I, I would say that they're a pretty uh, pretty well-run club. Oh, well, that's good news for Paul. Um and it illustrates as well. If you do have
0: any questions about your club at whatever level, we are always happy to ask them because you can, there's no limit to how low Kieran will go in in many many areas. <laughs> but we can Kieran will find out anything about a club at any level. So please don't be shy or, or think that the rest of the world won't be interested in in your club at your level or your nation because we are football is a, a very broad global church and we're happy to discuss it at every level so if you do have questions about your club it's questions at price dot com. i'd like to say thank you for all the people who sent questions in this week they're very good very interesting as always uh kieran i hope the um baroness has a the rest of a lovely weekend with the wine that's been delivered i hope the dog brings your training shoe back because you can't go training you can't you can't drive your audi tt with just one shoe on kieran can you
1: certainly around. not certainly not uh, and do you have a message for our listeners kieran well i'd just like to say again echo what kevin said thank you for all the questions thank you for the feedback it, it does keep us on our toes um if, if you could if you could bang that big purple icon thing on the uh on the apple podcast app um and, and give us a review it, it's, it's not for our ego you can say highbrow raising stuff you can say not as good as the swiss ramble we're not bothered about what you say but according to producer guy it, it does make a difference as far as uh trying to uh to keep uh keep our head above uh, the water financially uh in terms of putting on the production costs for the for the pod and other than that folks stay safe and look after yourselves
0: yeah. take care everybody bye I suck football.